0: And that song is based on Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 that we just read. We've been learning about freedom in Christ and going through this study in Galatians. The book of Galatians shows us that we are made right with God at salvation, not by our works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul continues in Galatians to explain the way we get saved is the way we're to live the Christian life. Not meriting, not earning, not getting God's favor by what we do or our works, but by the grace of Almighty God. Grace meaning God's power to be what we could not otherwise be. God's power to do what we could not otherwise do. We went through Galatians 3. And basically in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul, he surveyed 2,000 years of Old Testament history. And he went through, and in particular, he showed the relation between three different biblical historical figures. He talked about Abraham, he talked about Moses, and he talked about Jesus Christ. He explained that with Abraham, God gave Abraham a promise. A promise to bless all the families of the earth through the posterity of Abraham. And that was, that was what God intended. God chose this little nation of Israel. And God chose Abraham to be its founder and leader. And God never expected or intended that all the blessings being lavished upon Israel stay with Israel. But God's promise to Abraham was to reach out and that the nation of Israel, God's people, would reach out to all the nations of the world in order that they might not just find blessing but that they might know the blesser. He talked about Abraham. And then to Moses, the the apostle Paul's telling us, is where God gave the law. He gave to Abraham the what? The promise. The promise of blessing found in God. He gave to Moses the law. The law seems like that's a bad thing and that, that will annul the blessing and the promise. But instead, the law, while it restricts, the law, it exposes, the law actually was designed to drive people to God. And so the promise was given to who? Abraham. The law was given to who? Moses. And the law came long after Abraham, which meant that God says you can experience blessing in the relationship with him without having to live the law, experience the law. But the law's good, Paul said in Romans 7. It's just the law's not the answer. He talked about Abraham, he talked about Moses, but he talked about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is where you find the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham it's in Jesus and by the way it was that way for Abraham Abraham and every Old Testament saint became a child of God became a saint by looking forward to Jesus Christ while we're looking back to what Jesus did 2,000 years ago so that's basically what Galatians 3 is about we get to Galatians 4 And we discover that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, He doesn't just, I don't say just to minimize it, but He doesn't just cleanse our sins and wipe our slate clean. He doesn't just wash your sins away past, present, future, and give you a promise of eternal future blessings but what galatians 4 is about to show us is that when you get saved by faith and God cleans the slate he washes your sins away past present future he gives you a promise of eternal blessing but he also pr- uh, provides for an immediate inheritance immediate inheritance now Paul's talking about, and I'm preaching this morning on this thought, our inheritance in Christ, our inheritance in Christ. Imagine if you would someone who grew up in the worst of slums, clean water, food's nowhere to be found, they're hopeless, and they're living in just poverty, But then imagine a benefactor comes along and gives a title to a a magnificent mansion full of every conceivable delight and comfort available to man. And then imagine that person leaving this slums and going and living in that mansion, experiencing Everything, the vehicle of the dreams, money that doesn't run out, a place that is absolutely plush and and lavish with the, the greatest of comforts. But then imagine that person, that same person who was once in the slums, moves into this mansion, leaves the mansion after a few days only to return back to the slum. This is what we do when we leave our freedom in Christ for the bondage of just trying to follow your set of rules or a person's set of rules. Rules are important. You would not enjoy a sport of any kind if it were not for the rules. Um, Ushers can help if if, uh, you would like a nursery. We'd be glad to help provide a nursery so you don't have to go at it alone. We've got that available uh, just, just let let one of the men know that come by and um, and they'd be glad to help you there. But we've got a a wealth of inheritance and freedom given to us as Christians. But many who are Christians would be like little orphan Annie who wants to leave the, the, the mansion of Daddy Warbucks and go back to the, the, the hardship of the orphanage. Too often, God's people, I'm talking about God's people, not the unsaved, but God's people, we wallow in the poverty of this world instead of embracing the riches of Christ. Or, or we settle for the monopoly money of religion instead of receiving the riches of Christ. And so Paul is trying to remind God's people then and God's people today that we actually have an inheritance in Jesus Christ. When you got saved, you received an inheritance. Did you know that? Hey, are you living up to it? Come on. Or are you wallowing in the monopoly money of this world? Are you focusing on the riches that will soon pass away? Or are you living up to the inheritance that God's given to you? When we got saved, there are at least three things that Paul emphasizes that we receive as part of our inheritance. I want you to notice these, number one. We receive the promise, a promise that we are no longer slaves. No longer slaves to the world. No longer slaves to the law. So, The promises were free from slavery. We we find that in verses one through three. Now I say then, say rather, that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, listen, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. He says that our inheritance in Christ It promises us freedom. That's why we have a Conquer series. That's why we're constantly emphasizing discipleship. Why? To explain to you the will of your heavenly Father. To explain what He's given to you and that is His inheritance to you. We're no longer slaves. When you were, before you were saved, you could not do anything but sin. That's who you were. Your father's a liar according to John chapter 8 the devil and therefore you could not help but sin. You look at the world, you look at the newspaper, you look at things and you say, these people, how could these people do these things? And yes, they're held responsible for not restraining themselves if a murder takes place or some heinous crime. But the truth is a lost person, an unsaved person, a person who does not have God dwelling in them, they cannot but sin. And so when you and I get saved, we're free from that. Now you have a choice as to whether or not you sin. See, he's referring to those living under the law also. God's people, the Hebrews were slaves under the Egyptian rule, but they were also slaves under the law itself. The law held them in captivity and bondage, but through Christ, they were set free. No matter how wealthy a father may be, listen, no matter how wealthy a father may be, his infant son or toddler could never enjoy that wealth. He could not. In Roman world system, the children of wealthy people were cared for by servants or slaves. No matter who his father was, the child was still a child an heir to whatever the father may have, but that servant was actually the supervisor of the child. In fact, the child himself was not much different, Paul is saying, from the servant who guarded him. The servant was commanded by the master of the house, but the child was commanded by the servant who was under the child's father. See, Paul is trying to get us to see that the guardian in God's people was the law. The law disciplined the nation, prepared the people for the coming of Christ. That's what he talked about in chapter 3, verses 23, 24, and 25. So when these Judaizers, remember these Judaizers crept in? These Judaizers, these teachers, they were leading the Galatian believers back into legalism. That is, they're leading them back into religious bondage. And when someone goes from freedom in Christ and accessing by faith the power of God to obey and to serve and to do and to be. And instead of accessing by faith the power of God, they go back into bondage and they just try to obey in their own strength and power. What they find is I can't really do all of that list. So they begin to water down the list and they begin to change the list and they begin to say more and more, well, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, but they're so far away from grace because they're not living by faith. And what that does is the Judaizers over a period of time, the believers that they convinced, let's go back, they really brought them back to a spiritual immaturity. Not only are they in bondage still, But they're right back into immaturity and infancy because they are doing it themselves. See, Paul's simple point he's trying to make. Well, go back in in your mind. In the ancient times when a boy became a man, this was a very important, it was a very well-defined process. You might be familiar with the term bar mitzvah in the Jewish culture. Well, the Romans and the Greeks in their cultures, they had these as well. And these ceremonies for the Romans and the Greek cultures were very clear and very defined. I sometimes wonder if we need something like that in our culture to help the men stop acting like the boys. But sadly, Christians also revert back to spiritual infancy. That's why it doesn't matter. You have a Bible college degree. You grew up in the ministry. You know it all. But you're living as an infant in your relationship to Christ. And Paul's point, he freed you. Christ freed you from slavery. Don't run back to those chains. Don't go back to worldly living. Don't go back to self-effort. See, whenever someone says, Hey! I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. But they look like they're under the law. I'm gonna tell you, they're not under grace. You know what God's grace does? It enables you to be what you could not otherwise be and do what you could not otherwise do. God's grace is God's power to be what he wants you to be and do what he wants you to do. See, God's grace doesn't enable you to stop reading your Bible. God's grace never enabled you to stop tithing. God's grace never enables a person to stop attending church faithfully as Jesus Christ built the church for you to experience. What that means is you're back in bondage. You're back in slavery. In New York's Harbor, there's a lady who stands tall. We know this lovely lady as Lady Liberty. She holds a torch high. In her hand giving light. Inscribed on the pedestal upon which this lady stands are these famous words. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. See, she stands in New York Harbor with a crown on her head that has seven spikes. The spikes speak of what? History lesson? It speaks of the seven seas and the seven continents. In other words, Lady Liberty is saying, no matter where you are in the world, you can come to America. You come with all your mess. You come with all your problems. You come with your burdens. You come with all of your needs. You can come because Lady Liberty is holding a torch to show you a way. And at the bottom of Lady Liberty's feet is a chain that has been broken. She's inviting the broken, the bruised people who have been held hostage in one situation or another. No matter where they are in the world, they're welcome to come to America to find freedom. Let me remind God's people what Paul is reminding them in Galatians. God is holding the same promise of freedom to those who are looking to escape bondage. He welcomes all to come and to bring their problems, bring your burdens, bring your needs. He's faithful to show us the way and he has the power to break every chain, every chain. That's why if you ever come to one of our Saturday night prayer meetings, you're gonna hear people pray. God, send us the bruised. Amen. God, send us the broken. God, send us the messed up people. Well, who are they? That's you and me, Amen. not experiencing grace. So number one, when we get saved, we have an inheritance. And in that inheritance, we receive the promise we're no longer slaves. Now, we may be living like it, but you don't have to because you've been freed. But number two, in our inheritance from Jesus Christ, we receive the position of sons of God. The position of sons of God. See, not only have we been freed from the curse of sin, from the slavery of the law, we receive the position as a child of almighty God. Look at verse four and five. But when the fullness of the time was come. God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. See, God sent Jesus when? It says when the fullness of time had come. That's what the song was about Andrea and Luigi sang because he's talking about at the right time. In other words, the fullness of time means the perfect time. Do you or somebody in your family struggle with being on time? I just wanted to see which way the eyeballs shifted to know which one that would be. God's never been late Amen. at the fullness of time, at the perfect time. What does that mean? That means when Jesus came, he came at the perfect time. The time was right. Religiously, See, the law had been fully accomplished in its purpose. And it proved that no one, no one could fulfill the perfect standards of the law. Jews were looking for the Messiah that had already come. And Gentiles were fed up with the paganism and mythical gods. And so Jesus came at the right time, religiously speaking. He also came at the right time culturally Speaking culturally, Alexander the Great had clearly established the Greek culture and language throughout the known world. Greek was the common language of the people. So when it came to preaching and spreading the gospel throughout the world, there was a language barrier because everyone knew Greek. And so Jesus came at the perfect time culturally. He also came at the perfect time, the right time politically. See, the Romans built highways connecting all the major cities. The Romans had the great influence and control. But when they built these highways connecting all the major cities, it also allowed for the gospel to travel quickly to all corners of the, of, of the globe. Jesus came, the fullness of time, the perfect time, politically. Politically. You see, God sent forth, according to verse number four, the second part, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. See, Jesus was born as all humans are born. Someone said, well, Jesus did not exist until 2,000 years ago. No, he's always been alive. He never had a beginning. He just had to go through the birthing process like you and me. So he came into a state of obligation to God's law. But Jesus was uniquely able, it says, to redeem those under the law because he was perfectly able to keep the law. No human has ever been able to keep the law. Jesus did. Notice the word in verse number five. To, what's the next word? You see that? Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Look at it again. Verse number five, two, what's the word? Redeem. The word redeemed means to release a slave from his or her owner by paying the slave's full price. See, if you get saved this morning, if you're not saved, you get saved this morning, Jesus Christ, he will redeem you because he already put down the full price of your freedom and that was in the blood of Jesus. The slave master here though is the law. Jesus pays our full price to the law. He completely fulfills all of the law's demand. And so He's able to set us free if you'll come to Him. Now verse 5, now notice this. To redeem them that were under the law, that we, are you reading it? That we might receive the, what's the word? Adoption. Adoption. Adoption as sons. See, the word adoption and the teaching of adoption is the twin truth to the doctrine of regeneration, the new birth. It has to do with being in God's family. Someone said to me one time, I don't like the the teaching of adoption. I said, then you're missing out on the inheritance that you have in Christ. See, regeneration is the doctrine that tells how you enter into the family. Without adoption, you cannot enjoy being in the family. Regeneration tells you how you get into the family Whereas adoption, it tells and explains how you enjoy being in the family. Now, wipe out of your mind what we mean by adoption. And if you look at this in terms of how we understand adoption in our American economy, you're going to miss it. Because there's a difference in the New Testament than by what we mean in the terms of adoption in our society. See, when a child was born in a Roman society... They were under governors. They were under nannies while they were children. They're going to own the whole farm someday. But there's a period of time when they're under supervision. When they got to be 21, they went through a ceremony known as adoption. Literally, the word adoption means place as a son they were legally adopted. They're already sons, but they will then legally be adopted, meaning that at the age of 21, they are now entitled to all the privileges of the family as an adult child in that family. That means you could sign your name. Until you were 21, you couldn't even sign your name. That means you could have a change of garments. You couldn't even have your own change of garments until you're 21. It meant that you were entitled to all the privileges of a family. Why? Because you were then adopted. It it all belonged to you. Now, in his book, What's Good About This News, a gentleman by the name of David Bartlett tells the story that his wife and um, they, they adopted a, a son. They adopted, and he was the youngest of the family. They had some other children that were their own biological children. And he said um, they had to sit down at a certain time to explain that Mark, the brother was uh, their child biologically as they're explaining to Tommy, Tommy's adopted, and then and he said to Tommy, your brother Mark, he's a biological child, but, but Tommy, you're adopted. And they explained what it meant to adopt Tommy, that, that, that we, we chose you and we brought you into our family. And, and they said, and Mark, Mark, however, was born biologically into our family. And little Tommy said, oh, that's wonderful. Could you then adopt him too? <laughs> and what we're seeing in Galatians 4 is that Paul believes that God's adopted all, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're male or female, slave or free in Jesus Christ. And Paul is declaring the wonder of that adoption. See, it's unfortunate when we do not distinguish between children of God and sons of God. We're the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. But what he's saying is that every child of God is automatically placed into the family as an adopted son. As a son that now has all the legal rights and privileges of being a son. And there's no waiting period. There's no age period. There's no uh, growth period. As far as position is concerned, when a person gets saved, they are considered an adult son who can draw on the father's wealth and can exercise all the wonderful privileges of sonship because of adoption. See, the Father, our Father, our heavenly Father, wasn't content to let us languish in an orphanage of the world. See, human adoption that you're familiar with is a very extensive, intensive, expensive process. I want to say too, it's one of the most tragic indictments upon our country's moral fiber where you could decide to exterminate a baby in moments and receive funding to do it but if if you qualify to adopt a child you're looking at approximately $40,000 upwards 6 to 8 months and if you want to adopt a healthy newborn, you're looking at somewhere around seven years. Adoption entails a mountain of paperwork. It's also something you don't rush into. The timing has to be right. Your motives need to be right. You have to be mentally and emotionally prepared for the lengthening, the taxing process of it. And so much more the case if it's an international adoption. Adoption like pregnancy itself, it's not for the faint hearted. But yet we need to understand that the process God went through to adopt his sons and daughters were more extensive, more intensive, and more expensive than any human Adoption. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about this. To be saved means that you're regenerated. You've entered into the family of God. But God says, I have not regenerated you and put you into my family to wait for and hope for one day in the future when you get to heaven, you've got some wonderful blessings. But I've also adopted you so that you're entitled to all the privileges of a child of God. Listen, Romans 8 and and Ephesians teach this as well. That by being adopted, he's saying that you have all the resources of your heavenly father, all the resources given to you if you're saved, as was given to Jesus Christ, the son of God. Amen. God waited patiently for the right time. The fullness of time. And when he rescued us from the orphanage of sin, he brought us into his forever family to have the same access to the same inheritance as Jesus Christ. But number three, there's a third thing you receive receiving the inheritance of Jesus. It's the possession of the Spirit of God. The possession of the Spirit of God. We find that in verse six and seven. See, Paul wants to show the Galatians and us. Not only did Christ remove the curse we deserved, but he's also giving us a blessing that Jesus deserved. See, Jesus' salvation is not only like receiving a pardon and release from death row and prison. Because if that's what we receive, and that's what... Many stop at it with salvation. Getting saved is like being, you're released from prison. You're released from death row. But then you go on and and you're left to make your own way in the world. Thrown back onto your own efforts to see if you can make anything of yourself. But in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ, we discover that Jesus has taken us off of death row. And then he has hung around our neck as it were a congressional medal of honor. We are receiving, uh, we are received rather, and we're being welcomed as heroes. As if we accomplished something extraordinary, but we didn't. See, our inheritance from the Father is not a prize to be won by doing our best or following the rules. Instead, it's a gift from Christ to be received through faith, listen, and thankfulness. The gift of the righteousness of Christ when He cleanses us of our sins and He credits to our account eternal life. But He also blesses us with the possession of a person to live inside of us we referred to him as the Holy Spirit of the living God during the Depression years. And Brother Weimer's always reminding me that he did not start the Depression. But a man by the name of Mr. Yates owned a ranch in West Texas. With little money for clothes or food, his family, like many others, had to live on government assistance. Then one day an oil company came into the area and told him there might be some oil on his land. He signed a lease contract and the first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells were drilled and 30 years after that discovery, a government test of one of those wells still showed the potential flow of 125,000 barrels of oil a day. And the truth is, Mr. Yates owned it all, all the time. The day he purchased that land, he received the oil and the mineral rights. But he was living on government assistance because he didn't know what he had. A multimillionaire living in poverty. Many Christians are doing the exact same thing. They're entitled to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I've heard that. You're entitled to the energizing power of God Almighty. Yeah, I've heard those phrases. You, you have been given the inheritance that belonged to Jesus Christ, and if you're part of the family, they, you also have access to them now. Yeah, I've heard stuff like that. Not even aware of your birthright, and you're living in abject poverty of this world. Bible teaches we're now heirs and sons and we have the spirit of his son in our hearts. Notice what it says, we have a special cry. You know, I, was, I, I had written in here uh, an article that I had recently come across that described babies when they're born. They have a unique cry that resembles the, the sound of their mother because that's what they've heard for nine months. And uh, and I think some of you mothers would say, I didn't need a test to figure that out or a survey to figure that out. Because there's something of that bonding that's there. And uh, and so the Bible says we too have a special cry. Notice in verse 6, and because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Listen, this is a tender A beautiful expression. Paul's pointing to this distinctive cry as a way for these Christians and Galatians and us today to confirm our status as the sons of God. And and he reminds them, verse 7, if a son, then an heir. See, the bottom line here is this. God now treats us. Listen, this is what he's saying. God now treats us like we have done every good thing Jesus did. Because he, at the cross, treated Jesus like he did every bad thing that we did. I love the song I first heard nearly 30 years ago. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, amazing grace, the whole day long, Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Now, why would Paul use this expression This expression in a letter to Greek-speaking Galatians, but it's an Aramaic expression, Abba, Father. Why would he use that? And these Greek-speaking Galatians probably didn't know Aramaic because the common language of Palestine. Why would he mention Abba, Father? And I believe it's because Jesus Christ himself used it in talking to his father in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Listen to what Jesus said. Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he's saying, if you're saved, you can say the same to to the Father as Jesus Christ, our Savior, said to his Father. Because if you're saved, you're in the same family with the same inheritance and the same access by faith. It was a familiar term to address the Lord Almighty that way. So when Paul says that we should use it, he's vividly saying we have legally inherited the rights of Jesus Himself. We can approach God as if we were as beautiful, as heroic, as faithful as Jesus Himself. And if you know your, if you're honest about knowing anything about you, you say, "But we're not," and that's the point. And that's why we work. Worship Him because that's how God the Father is treating His sons and daughter. All of that inheritance is ours. A seminary professor was vacationing with his wife in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. One morning they were eating breakfast at a little restaurant, hoping to enjoy a quiet family meal. While they were waiting for their food, they noticed a distinguished looking white haired man moving from table to table, visiting guests. And that professor leaned over to his wife and whispered, I hope he doesn't come over here. You ever seen people just go from table to table in a restaurant? Usually it's a manager, but the managers don't usually dress like a manager. They dress like somebody at the table. They just look like they're randomly going, how was your meal? And they don't have anything that identifies them as a manager. And my wife always says, I'd like to just go up to people's table and ask them, how is their meal? And they say, I don't like it. And they say, well, we'll give you a free one on the house. And though she has no authorization to do so, you don't know who this guy is. I'm just assuming the guy or the lady is a manager just checking to see how our meal's doing or how we were doing with our meal. And so anyway, this guy is going from table to table. He comes to this table, sure enough. He said, where are you folks from? And the friendly voice or the professor said, we're from Oklahoma And uh, great, why are you here in Tennessee? And he says, um, we're just visiting. What do you do for a living, the stranger asks. And he says, I teach at a Bible college. Oh, so you teach preachers how to preach. Well, I've got a really great story for you. And the gentleman pulled up the chair and sat down at the table with the couple. And the professor groaned to himself and thought, great. Just what I need, another preacher story here on my vacation. Well, that older man started to talk, and he said, see that mountain over there? And he pointed to the base of that mountain. He said, there was a boy born to an unwed mother. He had a hard time growing up because every place he went, he was always asked the question, hey, boy, who's your daddy? Whether he was at school, the grocery store, the drugstore, and made no difference, he always seemed to hear the question, who's your daddy? And he would hide at recess times and lunch times from other students. And he would avoid going into stores because the question just hurt him so bad. When he was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to the church that he attended. And and the boy would often slip out right away as soon as the amen was given at the end of the service. But one day, the new preacher said the closing prayer pretty fast and got back to the back before the boy slipped out. And he caught the boy at the back door and he said, young man, as he put his hand on his shoulder, he said, son, who's your daddy? The whole church got deathly quiet. He could feel every eye in the church looking at him. Now everyone would finally know the answer to the question, who is this boy's daddy? But the preacher recognized something's not right and how everyone kind of stopped and how the boy seemed to be very uncomfortable. And God gave some Holy Spirit discernment to this young preacher, new preacher. And he said to the following scared boy, wait a minute, I know who you are. I see the family resemblance now. You're a child of God. With that, he patted the boy on the shoulder and said, boy, you've got an incredibly great inheritance go and claim it. With that, the boy smiled for the first time in a long time. He walked out the door a changed person. He was never the same again. When everyone asked him after this, who's your daddy? He just told them, I'm a child of God. The distinguished gentleman got up from the table, looked at the Bible college professor and said, isn't that a great story? The professor responded, that really was a great story. As the man turned to leave, the older man looked back at that Bible college professor and said, you know, if that new preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I probably never would have amounted to anything. And then he walked away. The waitress came and gave the seminary professor and his wife their bill. And the stunned professor said, lady, do you know by any chance who that elderly gentleman was or is? And the waitress grinned and said, of course. Everybody here knows him. That's Ben Hooper. He's the former governor of Tennessee. Listen to me. If you're saved, you're a child of Almighty God. Not only did He regenerate you, put you into the family, but He adopted you so you can enjoy right now the inheritance. So now, go by faith and claim it. Let's stand together, please.